Our text this morning is from John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39. On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are a thirsty people. Our fields are dry, our forests are dry, and this is all a very fitting picture of our nation. The water is gone, and we are stacked, kindling, ready to be burned. But Father, as we remember our nation's independence, would you soften our hearts that we might turn to you as a nation and experience true freedom. So Father, we ask that you would pour out your water, the water of life, on us. May it be a well springing up in our hearts to water our town, our state, our nation, and our world. Father, bless our reading of your word that we might hear and believe and receive the water of life. In your son's name we pray, and amen. Amen. So it's good to be back with you. I've been at uh, CCD uh, for a while, preaching in the first service, and we've been slowly working our way through the Gospel of John. We're about halfway through it, so it's a a slow pace. Uh, But I thought that for this sermon, what I'm doing is basically taking a few excerpts from different sermons that uh, I've preached over the course of time in John. So this is just kind of a message drawn uh, from all over in the book of John. And, and one of the things that we've kind of noticed as we're working through it at CCD is the way, um, the significance of the Feast of Booths uh, throughout the gospel. I don't think he, I noticed that before, but how prominent um, the Feast of Booths is in Jesus' ministry in John. And this section that we've just started here, verse 37, it says, on the last day, that great day of the feast, uh, the feast that he's referring to here is actually uh, the Feast of Booths. The Feast of Booths, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, or in Hebrew, Sukkot. Um, the Feast of Booths is one of the three pilgrim feasts. So you remember that every year, um, Israelites from all over the known world are returning to Jerusalem for the three pilgrim feasts. We're co- traveling from all over and then celebrating for several days in Jerusalem various feasts. And the Feast of Booths is one of those. Uh, and it is commemorating God's provision of Israel throughout the Exodus. That's why during the Feast of Booths, they are staying in, um, in tents or tabernacles or booths, temporary dwellings where you're basically camping for a week. And so it's, it's what a great holiday. Everybody comes to Jerusalem and you camp for a week and party for a week straight. And, and that's really what, how Feast of Booths went down. It's also celebrating You've just wrapped up the last of all the harvests, so you're grateful uh, for the harvest. So the ingathering of um, all of the harvest, that's also being celebrated in the Feast of Booths. And one of the things you find out is that of the three pilgrim feasts, the Feast of Booths was by far the most popular. Um, I think that, that was surprising. I would have thought Passover. Surely that's the most popular one, but it's not. It's the Feast of Booths is the one that like you, you can't miss the Feast of Booze. Everybody is coming and they're going to party for a week. It's like if you could imagine um, Christmas and Grace Agenda and your birthday, you know, all happening at one moment, but it lasts a full week, right? That's, that's what it's like in Jerusalem during the Feast of Booze. Um, 
One of the reasons for the great popularity of the Feast of Booths was this particular celebration that was added in the intertestamental period between the closing of the Old Testament and the coming of the New Testament. Um, There was a celebration that was kind of added to the Feast of Booths. And it's inspired by, I think, probably this prophecy in the book of Zechariah. So you're right at the end of your Old Testament looking forward. It's the last few verses of Zechariah 14. I'm looking at verse 16. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of tabernacles. Tabernacles is booths. And it shall be that whichever of the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. So, so you have this prophecy that, that everybody's going to be coming to tabernacles. Everybody's going to be coming to booths. But if you don't come, then there'll be a curse on you that there'll be no rain for you. And, and if you, I mentioned that booths is right at the end of the harvest and everything, but it's also, it's the end of the dry season and you're just about to enter into the rainy season in Israel. And so there's this, there's this prophecy that everybody's going to come to booths, but if you don't come, then there won't be rain for you. And so it started, there was this sort of transition where at booths, one of the things that you were celebrating was you were praying for God to send rain in the coming season. And the prayer for rain and the asking God to send water and to send rain becomes one of the the prominent features of the Feast of Booths. So much so that there's a ceremony called um, the water drawing ceremony that happens every morning throughout the Feast of Booths. And what happens is the high priest goes down to the Pool of Siloam. You know the Pool of Siloam from some of the ministry of Jesus. He goes down to the Pool of Siloam with a silver pitcher, fills it with water, and then brings it up to the city, entering through the water gate. And it's called the water gate because he's coming in with the water in the water drawing ceremony. And he's greeted with people lined up with the shofars, the trumpets blowing. And he comes up to the, um, he goes into the temple and you've got the altar there. And there are these two, I think they're kind of like funnels that are there. And normally in the morning, you have the morning sacrifice and different sacrifices that would happen on the altar and wine poured on the altar. But during this week of booths, the the water drawing ceremony, you come in with the water and you pour it into one of the funnels and you pour the wine into the other. And the, the water and the wine is sort of swirled and mixed and falls out on the corner of the altar and is poured onto the altar. And this happens every morning as a prayer to God asking him to send water. And that happens every morning, but then every evening during the Feast of Booths, you have this incredible party that happens in the courtyard of the temple. And it's like the party to end all parties. It happens as it gets dark, and so you've got to have the, the um, you've got to have lanterns and light for it. So they had these candelabras that were over a hundred feet tall throughout uh, the the courtyard. And if you're uh, a young boy, you could be lucky enough to be chosen to be the kid that gets to climb, you know, an over a hundred foot tall candelabra with a torch, lighting the lanterns all the way up. And the whole courtyard is filled with these, and you've got torches everywhere. So you've got this brilliant courtyard lit with all of these huge candelabras, and then the band start. You had actual like Levitical bands 
all over the place playing music, and the place is a raucous party. And then because you've got the bands playing, then dancing fills the courtyard. And then on top of the dancing, and this is my favorite part, you had acrobatic tricks going on throughout. Like that's how you really impressed people was by doing gymnastic spectacles throughout this party. In fact, you know of um, Gamaliel. Paul tells us that he was raised at the feet of Gamaliel, this great and famous rabbi. Gamaliel has a son, I think it's Shimon ben Gamaliel, who, since uh, Paul is raised at the feet of Gamaliel, you kind of expect that Shimon probably was a childhood close friend of Paul's. They would have been uh, together. But uh, Shimon is known later for being a great rabbi, but most important of all was he distinguished himself by at one of the Feast of Booths by managing to juggle eight lit torches with one hand without any of them touching. And, and this is like preserved in Jewish literature, like the night he juggled the torches. And then he finished it off with a handstand on two fingers. And, and, and that, was, that was the Feast of Booze. I mean, that's how, that's how you knew that you were having a good time when that was happening. So anyhow, this, this is the Feast of Booze. And, and in fact, the, um, there is a great, uh, I think, mention of the Feast of uh, the Water Drawing Spectacle in, uh, in the Mishnah where it says in the Mishnah, one who had never witnessed the rejoicing at the place of the water drawing had never seen true joy in his life, right? Like you, you do not know what true joy is unless you have done this. And, and the thing is, it goes from sunset till sunrise. They do it all through the night for a whole week. And then the whole thing ends, you know, you're doing the water drawing ceremony every morning and then on the eighth day the final morning there's a final ceremony to the rising sun and so it was like the most overpowering and incredible holiday that you never ever wanted to miss and I think that's why the feast of booze was probably the most popular of all of the the Jewish uh, feasts the the pilgrim feasts and so then I think it's really striking that particularly given what the Mishnah says like this was true joy. This moment when we're asking God for water and all this party is going on. And then Jesus says at the very end, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. It's really just striking in that context. He's at the end of that whole party and he says, you still haven't really tasted life. Like you, you think that this is joy, but there is something that is so much more. You're, you're asking for water, but there's water that I have to give that you still have no idea about. The, he's basically reenacting the same conversation he just had with the, um, the Samaritan woman at the well in, in chapter 4. Remember, she comes to him asking for water, and he says, you don't know the real water. He's, he's giving to the Jews the same conversation he has given to her, where he says to her in John chapter 4, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. That's going to be the true joy. The water that Jesus has is living water. Now, so, so there's physical life and death, and then there is life and death beyond just physical life and death. And we already know this. I mean, even you don't have to be a Christian to understand this concept. We, we, we use this in our culture all the time. Uh, we have a way of describing times that are more enjoyable or the times that are most poignant 
as the times when we feel truly alive, right? When you're, um, when you're just in your day-to-day week, you're just um, punching the clock, you're just going through the motions, that's your normal life. But then, right, when you get to go on vacation and you're sitting there on the beach with a drink that has a little umbrella in it, that's when you say, okay, this is truly living. This is, this is the true life. And, and there is this sense that we have, even apart from being a Christian, there's a sense of like, the, the drudgery of life, and then moments where it's like you get a taste of something more. And when you get that taste, we tend to describe it as truly living. This, this life that we long for that is beyond the life that we're in, and you get these little glimpses of it every now and then. You remember uh, Mel Gibson as William Wallace in Braveheart. Every man dies, but not every man really lives. That, I believe, became the senior quote of choice for uh, young men for about 15 to 20 years. So you've got the sort of pimply-faced kid playing Dungeons and Dragons in his parents' basement and saying, you know, this is what it means to truly live. Every man dies, but not him, and truly lives. So there's, there's being physically alive, but then we intuitively feel that there is more to, to just, there's more to life than just biological life. And that is, that, that thing that we intuitively feel, I'm saying is a biblical truth. There's a biblical truth. Though we don't understand that truth quite right until we come to a more Christian understanding of it. We feel it, but we don't understand it until we are in Christ. What this true life is that we long for. Um, so th- think of it this way. Start with death, okay? There is physical death and then there is spiritual death. Spiritual death is being cut off from God. That, that's what it means to be spiritually dead, to be cut off from God. Ephesians 2.1, And you he made alive who were dead in trespass and sins. Or Ephesians 4.18, Those who are living in sin are alienated from the life of God. When you're in your sin, when you're apart from Christ, you're living in death because you're cut off from the life that is in God. Colossians 2.13, and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. To be living in your sin, cut off from God, is spiritual death. You're cut off from that life that we all feel that we need, that life that we all secretly hunger for, thirst for. The the men who uh, don't truly live are those that are living cut off from the life of God. And this spiritual death, then, we're told in Scripture, culminates in the ultimate death, which is the second death. Revelation 21.8. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake of fire, which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Okay? When you're living in sin, you're cut off from the life of God, and the ultimate uh, culmination of that is spiritual death, the second death, which is what hell is. Spiritual death culminates in the eternal judgment of hell. But then you have the opposite. You have spiritual life, the life that Jesus offers, the life that God has for us. He came to offer life. Um, it, it is that's how John introduces Jesus as the one who came to bring us life. It's really interesting working through John. One of the things I've noticed is I think basically the entire gospel of John is really just the footnotes for about the first 15 verses. Like the first 15 verses kind of says it all and everything else is just John trying to show how that is true. But when John introduces Jesus, here's how he introduces him. He says, in him 
was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus came as life, full of life. That's, that's what Jesus was. He comes into this world where everybody is dead, and he enters full of life. Or as, as Jesus explains in John 10.10, 10, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. So Jesus is life and he comes to bring that life, to give it to everyone, to overflow with it and pour it into other people's lives. So think then again about that, that last day of the feast, that last day of the Feast of Booze, when Jesus stands up in the middle of that party, all right, and he says in the midst of the drawing water ceremony, the most joyful moment in the Jewish world, this is, this is their moment when they are overflowing with the satisfaction of, I have all that this life could offer at this moment. And, in, and at that moment, Jesus stands up and he says, you still don't know what real life is like. You still have not tasted life at his best because I am the life. I am life. Jesus came with the stated purpose of taking the overflowing life that is in him and giving it to us. Uh, when you have life from Jesus, you have life overflowing from your own heart. Um, we're told in, in Scripture that you know, a city that has a well springing up inside of it is a city that is impossibly, virtually, it's, it's impossible to defeat with a siege, right? When you have a city that has a well inside of it, you lay siege to it, you can wait and you can wait and you can wait, but you can't drive them out when they have a well on the inside watering them from the inside. If the well is outside, you just lay siege to them and pretty soon they're gonna die of thirst and they're gonna give in. But when the well is on the inside, you can withstand forever, right? And, <clears throat> excuse me, and that is what Christ is for us. He is the well, that river of life that is springing up from the inside of the heart, making it impossible for you to be defeated by any siege. And just as the spiritual death culminates in the second death, Spiritual life culminates in eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave us his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Have everlasting life, eternal life, life that is infinite, right? And if you um, are one of those people that have suffered through calculus, you, you should know for a moment the significance of multiplying anything by the number infinity, right? Take anything and you multiply it by infinity and everything is different. Everything has changed. It doesn't matter how small that thing is. You multiply it by infinity. It's something totally different. And, and Jesus says, you have a life that has been multiplied by infinity, put in your heart and overflowing into this world. Eternal life is life multiplied by infinity. Now, this is actually a common line of argumentation for, um, for John or, or, or for Jesus with John recording it throughout John's gospel. Think about it, he, he comes to a starving crowd. They're starving. So he multiplies the loaves. He feeds them. But then when he's done feeding them, he's, what does he tell them? He says, I am the bread of life. I'm the bread of life. You're hungry. You don't get what you really need. You're thirsty. You don't get what you really need. I am the door of life, John 10, 7. You feel trapped, you feel lost, you feel like you don't know what to do next. I'm the door that you're looking for. I am the shepherd, 
John 10, 11. I am the way, the truth, the light, the true vine, the resurrection and the life. He does this again and again throughout the gospel of John, constantly saying he names the things the people feel they need, and he says, I am that. I'm that, I'm that, I'm that. Everything you're looking for, I am that. And I think that's because in John, we know that Jesus is the I am. He, you, you, can, you can just strip off the direct object and just leave it at that. He is the I am. He is the supreme I am. He is the thing, whatever it is that we're hungering, that we're needing, that we're desiring, he actually is the ultimate fulfillment of that. He says that throughout the Gospel of John. I am, I am, I am. And all that mankind is searching for, hungering for, thirsting for, longing for, all of it finds its true fulfillment, its lasting and satisfying fulfillment in him, the one who is. The one who is the I am. And I, I, would, I would argue that all Christian faithfulness is rooted in receiving this by faith. Okay? He is life. He is the one who is. And, you're, and when you believe in the gospel, you're just receiving that into you and it overflows out of you. Um, this is, I, I'm describing here um, what you might describe as the sufficiency of Christ. I think that's the title of the sermon. The complete and total sufficiency of Christ. That the fact that whatever it is that we need or lack, Christ truly is that. And when I say that, I'm, I want to note that I'm not just talking about the fact that his death is sufficient to atone for all of your sin. Because that's certainly true. That his death is sufficient to atone for all of your sin. And a lot of times when we talk about the sufficiency of Christ, that's what we're referring to, the fact that his death atones for everything. But I think that sufficiency of Christ needs to overflow into the rest of our lives as well to understand the complete and total sufficiency of Christ, that all that you need is in him. The fact that the person, Jesus Christ, is so infinite in his life that his life is, over, is the overflowing answer to all that you look for. His life is the overflowing answer to all that you look for. Humor me uh, for a moment in a, a brief um, theological sidetrack. You might have heard of what the, the theologians uh, call the doctrine of divine simplicity. In a very simple summary and probably overly simplistic summary, so forgive me if I'm uh, making it too, a little too small, but the doctrine of divine simplicity says that essentially you can't divide up the divine nature of God. You can't, you can't chop up God's divine nature. And God alone is unique in this. He alone has this characteristic of incapable of dividing him up. So, so think of it this way. Wherever or whatever God is, all of him is there. All of him is that. Wherever or whatever God is, all of him is there. All of him is that. Okay? And so there, there's... There's a lot to say about that doctrine, but I want to point out uh, one little uh, implication, one, one implication from this. And that, that is, I just want to dwell on that fact that where, wherever God is, all of God is there. Um, so God's omnipresence, we talk about the omnipresence of God, where, wherever, God is everywhere, okay? God's omnipresence is not like um, a huge um, um, ball of dough that we have rolled thin across the whole universe so that everywhere has a little bit of that dough in it. 
Like when we think along human means you know, and, and the way our minds work, that's how we tend to think of God's omnipresence, that he's sort of rolled across the whole universe and spread out so that he fills it all in that way. But that's not what God's omnipresence is like. Because if you use that analogy, then, then wherever you are, you have just a little thin layer of that dough, right? You just have a little thin layer of that divine nature. But that's not what God is like. Wherever God is, all of God is there. God's presence here is not one thin, rolled thin little layer. God's presence here is the entirety of him. Wherever he is, all of him is there. His omnipresence is all of him here. You cannot chop him up and say, because he's here, he's not over there. He is all here. Wherever God is, the entirety of God is there. Now, now take that for a moment and apply that to what we're saying about Jesus and the life that he gives to us, okay? Apply that to the life that Jesus gives to us. Jesus Christ has in himself eternal, infinite, overflowing, all-sufficient life, okay? In himself is eternal, infinite, overflowing, all-sufficient life. And that life that he has is given to you in the gospel. That is given to you in the gospel. And if you think again for the, for, about the lesson from the doctrine of divine simplicity, where that life is, all of that life is. Where that life is, all of it is. What Christ is, he is exhaustively for you. He is all of that exhaustively for you. And the fact that there will be tens of billions of saints who share in that life does not mean that you are getting one ten billionth of that life. Okay, the fact that that you can look around and see other people who also have that life in them does not mean that in any way the life that you've been given has been diminished. It's not cut in half every time it's shared with somebody else because all of him is here. All of him is for you. So you're not getting um, you're not getting a diminished portion. You're getting the entirety of it. You think for a moment of the, the Christ Church slogan. I think it's sitting there in the bulletin. All of Christ for all of life. All of Christ for all of life. You need to understand that all of Christ, all of them for you, just you. You individually has all of Christ, all of the life of Christ given to you. And, and, and that's why then I'm, I'm arguing that we need to understand the incredible sufficiency of the life that we have in Christ. The overflowing eternity and infinity of the life that has been put into your heart. Um, as good as good reformed protestants we understand the sufficiency with regard to our salvation right when we're talking about our salvation we're pretty good at saying okay when i was saved it was 100% the work of god i contributed nothing he did all of it because he is sufficient and he takes care of all of it okay but but I want to um, press on how this sufficiency works its way into the rest of our lives. It's certainly true of our salvation, but I think we are, are sometimes too quick to just stop there and not see how this sufficiency works in the rest of our life. Colossians 2.6, uh, Paul says this, As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. This is something I think I've learned from Doug on a few, of a, a few occasions is the way when you look at that, you suddenly realize, okay, how did I receive Christ Jesus the Lord? 100% grace, 100% mercy as a gift and me simply resting in him. And then Paul says, the rest of your life 
you're supposed to live out in the same way. This sense of like just being receiving something, being given something, is supposed to um, is supposed to permeate the rest of your life, and you continue to walk in the same way as when you first received Jesus. So, how did we receive Jesus? Well, again, we're reformed, so we know that we're supposed to say, "Okay, it's 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 God working completely. I'm passive." This is where um, the, you know the death of Lazarus, the resurrection of Lazarus, is such a great image. You you were a dead corpse uh, when Jesus came to save you in your spiritual death. But just like Lazarus, John 11, you contributed nothing to your salvation but the ripe smell of death. Okay, that's all, that's all that you gave. And then, and then God's voice comes and your eyes open and you're suddenly alive and you walk out realizing you did nothing, right? You didn't contribute anything to that, uh, to that resurrection. So you were totally saved by the work of God, not by what you did. But having been saved, how do you then walk? Paul says, in the same way, continuing to live in this complete sufficiency of the life of Christ. And this is tough here because we know that having been saved, we're now called to a life of obedience, right? We know that you're now called to go and do things. The Great Commission, you're supposed to baptize them and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. So we are supposed to obey. We're supposed to get up and go out and do. We're supposed to obey. But the temptation then is to think that salvation is of grace, but then after we're, we are saved, we're supposed to obey, so we shift to works. But it's really important to understand that obedience for a regenerated Christian is fundamentally different than obedience outside of Christ. Okay, If you're a Christian, that your obedience is fundamentally different than somebody who is trying to do the exact same thing but is standing outside of Christ. Because you're living in this sufficient life. You're living as somebody who has this, this everlasting eternal life coming out of your heart. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. You obey from a position of grace and spirit-filled power. Okay, All Christian obedience, and I want to emphasize, we are called to obey. We must go and obey. But all Christian obedience flows fundamentally from resting in the perfect sufficiency of Christ. It is, it is a different kind of obedience when one man is sitting there gritting his teeth, attempting to do what he knows he's supposed to do. I'm supposed to love my wife. And so he grits his teeth and he says, okay, I'm going to help with the dishes. Okay, I'm going to, and he's all these things he's trying to do to love his wife, but he's doing it just gritting his teeth on his own power. Somebody who is in Christ has the blessing of having obedience being the thing that naturally flows from a resting position. When you can actually just rest in the goodness of Christ, then let the obedience flow from that. And it looks perhaps the same on the outside, but it is a very fundamentally different kind of action. Let me give, uh, let me give uh, an example. Think of a strong impulse that you know is sinful, but it still easily controls you. Okay, There's a, a, a strong influ, um, impulse that you know it's wrong, but it just gets a grip on you, and then it feels like you're hopeless before it. It could be a se sexual immorality, some temptation to lust or something like that. It could be anger, something that just inflames you and gets you so passionately outraged that you feel like you're at the mercy of this fire that is descending upon you. Perhaps it's covetousness, this constant looking to your left, to your right, seeing something that somebody else has, and it just makes you sick in your heart so that you cannot, you cannot 
cannot bear the weight of it, and it just weighs heavily on you. It could be bitterness. It could be worldly sorrow, this sense of despair and hopelessness that just puts you into this dark, dark depression at your situation. Okay, these are all these impulses that can descend upon you, and they get a, a sort of vice on your heart. Now, now in, in that position, ask yourself this question. What are you desiring fundamentally that Christ is not so much more than that? What what are you sitting here longing for that Christ is not infinitely more than that? He is that multiplied by infinity. He is that for you. He is that in your heart. What What do you grip by? What are you longing for that he is not infinitely more than that? Think of Jesus throughout the book of John saying this again and again, the I am, I am, I am. I am the bread. I am the water. I am the life. Whatever it is you think that you are looking for, Jesus fundamentally is the ultimate satiation of that desire. All right, he has that for you. I am the wealth. I am the health. I am the love. What do you need that Jesus is not? And what he is, he eternally and infinitely is for you. He is the complete cup overflowing of that desire for you. So you can fight lust, you can fight depression, you can fight jealousy, you can fight all of these things with a whole lot of effort. You can make your list, yourself a list of all the disciplines that you need to do to sort of toughen yourself up and get, get yourself stronger and be the person that can withstand all of these temptations. Or you can simply rest in who Christ is and what he is for you. That's not to say that it doesn't result in action. It obviously must result in action. It must result in effort and work on your part, but it's driven by a completely different kind of fuel. It it changes entirely the, the thing that is energizing and the thing that is driving you, and you'll discover that when you are when you are working from a position of resting in Christ, your endurance goes way up. It's, it's crazy how much longer and how much more you can face when you are working from that position. All Christian obedience, then, is rooted simply in resting in Christ. Or let me come at it from another angle, because one of the things that I think that can be particularly paralyzing is not so much the temptation that lies before us, but the terrible record of sin that lies behind us, right? You've got all these things that are in front of you that I've got to face this, I've got to take care of that. But then um, a lot of times that's not what defeats us. What defeats us is the terrible life story that goes from zero to whatever age you are right now. You've got this track record of sin. You've got this track record of devastation. You've got all of this mess behind you, and that mess makes it feel like you have no choice but to continue down a particular path. You can feel very trapped by what feels like the story that you're locked into. The grief and the sorrow over the mess that you have made of your life can trap you in a little prison house of despair. And it's sad because it's oftentimes it's a, an entirely self-inflicted little prison that we, we keep ourselves in. You've got things that you've done wrong, and then for some reason you can't let go of them, and you just sit and hover over them and continue thinking, beating yourself for them. And it's weird because it's like you can see, you know, like a little 10-year-old boy who's sitting there weirdly finding exquisite pleasure in picking his own scabs, right? And you're like, 
Why, how is this a fun thing for you? I mean, this is, this is a really gross. And unless you can remember being that 10-year-old boy, and you can perhaps remember how it is that you could find pleasure in that. But it, it, it's, this, it's this gross thing, and he's doing it to himself, and you say, stop that, stop that. And, and you feel like, I, I can't understand why you would behave like that. Except for then look at yourself and your own heart and what you do to yourself. And is it not true that you can find a weird and twisted pleasure over picking your own spiritual scabs? right? You can, you can sit and go over everything in your past and torment yourself with it and weirdly choose to do it because you find some kind of bizarre pleasure in saying these things to yourself, in dwelling on these things, in feeling, and, uh, feeling miserable in what is entirely a self-inflicted sort of misery. We have our, our version of the vice where you sit and your failures haunt you and the con- condemnation that you feel from those sins, it feels like a trap that you can't get out of. But simply understanding who Christ is and what he has done and then realizing that what he did, he definitively accomplished for you, that is the most freeing thing in the world. In, in other words, if you are trapped in the prison of who you are, and what your story is, right? You're, you're trapped in this prison where, where somebody says, stop being like that. And you say, this is just what I'm like. This is my life. This is how I've always been. And you feel trapped in that prison. What better way to get out of the prison of who you are than by encountering the one who is, right? The, the great I am, the one who infinitely is and can blow all of that out, out of the water, who can remove all of that in a moment. When you see who Christ is, you understand that he is that infinitely and he is that for you. You can simply let go of the stupid past because it is paid for. It is forgiven. There was a once for all death and there's no need to sit and pick the scab because he is all that you need. He is all that you need to be. Lazarus come forth, right? Jesus' great, great words, his great command. Lazarus come forth. Stand up and walk out of it. He does not say, Lazarus, roll around in there for a while and feel sheepish and guilty for what you did, right? Don't, you know, okay, we're going to raise you from the dead, but it's going to take some time. It's going to be painful, and we're going to all sit and stare at you and make fun of you for stinking and rotting, right? He doesn't say that. He just says, Lazarus, come forth. He doesn't say, Lazarus, come out, but keep the grave clothes on you for the next year so everybody knows what a bad boy that you have been. He simply says, Lazarus, come forth. And then that follow-up, loose him and let him go. Get, get the grave clothes off him and let him go. Get all of that off of him because he's been raised because he has this life in him. And that life displaces everything else. The only escape from the prison of who you are is to rest in someone who is the I am, infinitely overflowing with life, that life for you, that life given to you. So you are free, and all of your obedience from this day on flows not from work, from effort, from gritting your teeth and sucking it up and going forward, but it comes from, uh, from actually just simply resting in Jesus Christ and who he is, and who he is is the I am for you. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you are the author of life and the giver of all good things. You're the source of every blessing, and you pour out your blessings with such generosity. Father, we are surrounded by the beauty and the joy of your goodness on all sides, and we receive all these things as a small down payment of the joy to come. But Father, we can only look to that joy to come with the eye of faith.
And we can only open that eye of faith if you give it. So we ask that you would pour out your spirit on us. Open our eyes that we might look clearly to the life that is to come and that we might know that we have that inheritance. Father, create that faith in us that it might become an overflowing well in our hearts that would fill our town with gospel hope. And we pray now as your son taught us to pray, saying, The modern church has in many ways trivialized corporate worship. Whether through the megachurch tendency of turning the service into a circus of pyrotechnics and entertainment, lacquered in vaguely Christian sentiment, or in other orbits, the trivialization occurs through the ordination of Lesbeterian bishopettes inviting their quote-unquote congregation into conversation about the lived experiences of oppression. At present, those aren't our temptations, and may God deliver our congregation from ever being enticed to head down those roads. But that raises the question, what temptations are we most likely to be enticed by? It is the temptation of assuming the blessing of God can be put on autopilot. Indifference, in other words. A tidy table with a white tablecloth, bread and wine neatly arranged, rows of families in their Sunday best, a liturgy which is structured after the order outlined in Scripture. All of those good things are just busy work if they're devoid of true love for God himself. The besetting sin of those who claim to endeavor to be faithful to God's word is to mouth the words while the heart wanders. Make no mistake, God is still zealous for his house. God will still topple tables. God will still withdraw his glory from faithless worshipers. He who has commanded us to worship him will abhor that worship if it isn't born of faith in Christ alone. Neither our liturgy, nor our Christian community, nor a beautiful sanctuary, nor a high view of sacraments, nor the expositional preaching of God's word can thrive without the new birth. So, if we would enjoy God's blessing upon our congregation, upon our worship services, upon this sacrament, we must come through the blessed one alone. If we come through Christ, all those distinctives we cherish come too, and our worship ascends as a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So come in faith and welcome to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you that through this meal, you nourish our faith, you build us up. We pray that your blessing would rest upon it as we look to Christ alone in faith, and that his blessing and his presence would fill us now by the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, and amen. The charge is this. You've heard this morning that Jesus is the I am. Jesus is the sufficient one. Jesus is all that you need. Anyone who says otherwise, anyone who says it's Jesus plus something is selling you something. They're trying to deceive you with something. It's Jesus only, ever, always. That is true Christianity. Now here with believing hearts, the benediction of our Father. The peace of God, which passes all understanding. Keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, and the blessings of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be upon and remain with you always. And amen.